The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Thank you for these precious souls and for their interest in this topic as we open up your word and as we endeavor to um, provide uh, those whom we love with counsel and help and soul care that is God-glorifying in every respect. Aid us and assist us by your spirit to that end, even this evening, I pray. Amen. Amen. My name is Jonathan Rourke, and this is a seminar, session one, entitled, Get Over Yourself. Punctuation matters. And I think when I submitted this to the authorities, it may have had an exclamation mark at the end, and it may not have. But looking at it with an exclamation mark, it seems somewhat confrontational. Uh, I, this is not going to be confrontational. Uh, I, I'm not angry with anybody. Uh, <laughs> I'm not yelling at you to get over yourself. I'm saying it, really, it's, it's more of an indicative uh, like it, it, it's an awareness of self that I think we need to overcome. And so the subtitle, uh, and I believe your handout has this, really it's the foundation, the purpose, and the function of the inner person. According to one popular psychology website, there are several ways in which you can determine what kind of person you are by simply taking a test. One of these uh, websites contains several of these. I went through them out of curiosity to see what I was really like. There is a quick personality test which only has 10 questions. In 10 questions, you can know who you are. There's also one called the borderline personality test. Uh, this one is 12 items to determine whether or not you have borderline personality disorder. The narcissistic personality inventory was my favorite. It's 40 questions, and, and I took that one. And, and I want you to know you're ranked, and it determines how narcissistic you are. And I know that you all would be so interested to know how narcissistic I am. Um, I took that test two times because I was curious to see if I could actually answer the questions with integrity on both extremes, and you can. It's interesting, and that'll play in a little bit later in our talk. There's also one called the paranoid personality test, but I was too afraid to take it. And then there is the self-esteem test, which just taking the test proves you don't have any. So it's really an interesting way of tricking you. Now, historically, though, these personality tests have been around for a long time. You can go back to 1919 with the Wordworth personal data sheet. It was actually developed by the United States Army to screen out recruits who might be susceptible to shell shock. A little bit later, 1921, you've got another test, and this is that famous one. Remember where they will hold up a card with some ink blots on it, and you're supposed to tell them what you see? By the 1930s, you had another test that was used by the government to see if you were susceptible to being turned by enemy intelligence. Now, that's an interesting test. It'd be an interesting test to give to somebody to determine whether or not they're susceptible to being deceived. Later on in World War II, of course, you have what we know of as the Myers-Briggs type indicator. This is one that's probably most popular. You also have another one that came out in the 60s called the Personality and Preference Inventory. 
Uh, this is one that would help people work together in a corporate environment. Later on, 1971, they have tests uh, that would determine your relationship awareness. 1978 came out with a test that gave you a color instead of a defining characteristic. Now, I don't know how that's helpful, but you walk away, you're a blue, or you're a red, or you're a green. Maybe it's because they don't want you to know what that means. And you go and find the other blues, the other greens, the other reds, and you just work together beautifully. There is one called the DISC assessment that identifies four personality types, and then most recently, the International Personality Item Pool, which is really this open source of all these different characteristics, and you're supposed to take them all to figure out who you are. There are 2,000 traits listed. So here's the question tonight. What's a believer to do with all this data? What is a believer to do with all this science. Question is, how do I take what somebody might have in their mind as their issue or their problem or their way of expressing themselves or their strength or their weakness and they bring it with them into that session where we're trying to determine how to counsel them from the Bible? I'm going to give you my answers now and then I'm going to return to them and hopefully defend my answers. Here are my answers up front. Number one, you put your faith in Christ and become a new creature. That's the first thing we do to kind of combat some of this noise and static in the culture. Put your faith in Christ and become a new creature. And then number two, put your trust in the Holy Spirit to overcome residual sin patterns. Put your faith in Christ, become a new creature. Put your trust in the Holy Spirit to overcome residual sin patterns. The proposition is pretty simple, and I'm going to tell you right up front, this seminar might be a little bit different than the others that you're going to be experiencing. I don't believe that I've ever had the privilege of addressing this particular group before, or even participate in the speaking at a conference of this nature, so it's a little bit new, new territory for me. Um, but we'll do our best to, or I'll do my best to communicate this in a way that's helpful for you. Um, I really think as I was looking into this topic, though, I want to get back, back, back all the way to, like, what is the most clear scriptural foundation for understanding this topic? And if I can leave that with you tonight, I'll feel like I've, I've served you well. Here's my, here's my overall proposition, okay? Basically, it's this. If you understand the foundation, the purpose, and the function of the inner person, you will not be persuaded to allow worldly philosophies to influence your counsel. Or, said another way, clear-eyed counsel comes from removing the cataracts of vanity. Clear-eyed counsel comes from removing the cataracts of vanity. It's done in three ways, and that is to address these three subjects written on your paper that I've given you as a handout there in your outline. Number one, we're going to look at the image of God. First point is the image of God. Genesis 2.7 says this, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. In an effort to recover that starting point, for discussions about identity, it's important to establish the fact that personality is part of being created in the image of God and not merely the consequence of possessing 
animate life. The the, the inner person, the inner man, it's usually a a male gender assigned to it in the scriptures, but that applies, of course, to everybody. The inner person, the function of that inner person, the existence of that inner person is a direct consequence of being created in the image of God, not just having life. And I think that's crucial if we're going to be able to serve people effectively. Because true identity and the way that identity is formed has to be limited exclusively to mankind and is distinguished from temperament because even animals have temperament. To put this perhaps crassly, when we allow a person's so-called personality to impact the way we administer soul care, we treat them like animals. Because how many of you have animals? Put up your hands high. Again, nothing to be ashamed of. Put them up high. All right. How many of you love your animals? I'm, a couple of you don't. You have them and you don't love them. You'd be like us. We, we have animals for a time. We buy animals that don't live long, like, like hamsters. And then we ask the person, how long do these live? And they're like, year, year and a half. I'm like, closer to year or closer to year and a half? Because I just want to know because we're going to grow tired of them quickly. Animals have a temperament. We had, we had two hamsters, one for my, each for my two younger boys. We've got four kids, 18, 16, 14, 12. My two younger ones, even though they're the same age differential as everybody else, we call them the little boys and the older ones. And I don't know why, except that's what we call them. Each had a hamster. Both hamsters lived about the time the guy said they were going to live. And thankfully, uh, they're now gone. However, they were both very different. One hamster was really, really nice. It would just sit in your hand. It was one of these dwarf hamsters, and it would just sit there and cuddle and whatever. The other one was possessed by a demon. And if you went anywhere near it, it would go out of its way to take your life. It would probably chew into your carotid artery if you were sleeping, and it got out of its cage. They have temperament, but they don't have personality. You can't assign a different sort of construct to one versus the other emotionally, personality-wise. It's a temperament. Now listen, when you're dealing with human beings as an image bearer, they possess identity based on, note this please, heredity. And this is so critical. There is a hereditary nature. It comes through in your physical characteristics. It comes through in your spiritual characteristics. In essence, dirt becomes a creature when breath is given. And man bears an image because of the architecture of creation, not the procedure of creation. Explain that. It's not just the procedure of creation that gives mankind his soul. It's actually the way the grand architect designed it. Because he designed it to be exclusively human. So so when we're talking to people and we're working with them, and we have this sense that either we're not a good fit, or they've got these issues to work out, or I've seen your type before. Anybody thought that? I don't recommend you say that. Do you think it? Don't we, don't we, don't we immediately categorize people when they come in? I, I do. I'm guilty of it. Immediately characterize them. You know, certain people, we, we judge even, you know, because, because they're, um, oh, I don't know, maybe they're late, you know? Maybe, maybe they arrive a little bit late. Maybe they show up late. Maybe, maybe they just like come in and, 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 you know, everyone else is here, but they show up late. 
Patrick Cho and I are good friends, so I can say that to Patrick. And I know his personality. He's just fine with it, see? He's happy. He's not going to hold a grudge. He's not going to hurt his feelings. We judge. And I think that as a pastor, one of the things that I have to pray for when I encounter any person is, Lord, give me the wisdom to, to not rest upon any preconceived notion of what's going to happen. And, and my great concern, given the proliferation, not only of such personality tests, but of the common way in which it has worked itself into even Christian language, is that though it is not inherently sinful, and I'm going to come right out and tell you immediately, I have friends who are even in this industry, I'm not saying it's inherently evil, but, but there's a caution in it. Why? Because it's tantalizingly helpful. It is amazing sometimes how, how right they can be. If you've ever gone through one of these seminars, you know, they'll disclose something at the end of it, and the person sitting next to you, usually your spouse, will say, wow, they got you pegged. <laughs> Isn't it true? It's tantalizing. Now, how do we then make sure that we don't fall into this trap of thinking that it is merely a function of our personality? I say I go back to this because every human soul, please remember, has a source created by God and a species. A source and a species. So, the source is always God, right? Every single human soul that exists or has ever existed or will ever exist, and I'm not getting into the metaphysical argument as to whether or not every soul for every person yet to be born exists and how that works. Please just, we're not going there. It's not this class. But just say every soul is created by God. Would you all agree with that? Yes. However, I use the word species because we also know that Every person is born a sinner, and Jesus says that they are from their father, the who? Devil. So we have one source, but I say two species. There is a species of individual, and we were all one of them. We were all, at one point, sons and daughters of our father, the devil. And so when I say that this is both evangelistic, you know, and an issue of sanctification, I say that because the starting point is always, who is your father? Now, paternity, if we can call it that in a spiritual sense, is either derived through the case of a believer because they've been adopted by God or from Satan, the father to whom they were born. Therefore, human beings do not have a personality per se, they rather have the traits of the one who they take after, whether good or evil. So the foundational truth here, brothers and sisters, from point number one, the foundational truth here is that you are what your parent is. That means we all have the same starting point, our father, the devil, and Christians have a point when they become a new creation. That new creation aspect is just vital in every case. Before I even knew that he was going to be speaking here tonight, I had highlighted the following paragraph from Deepak's book, Pastor and Counseling. Don't remember where I picked this up, but I've had it for some time. And I do believe that it's one of the most helpful books for a pastor. 
I believe a lot of books are written for people and they read them and then they wish their pastor would read them. This book, written by a shepherd, elder, pastor, and another elder, pastor, together, four pastors, I found exceptionally well-crafted for what we need. The following quote, page 80. Quote, if people are stuck in the performance trap, thinking they must do something in order to earn God's favor, then they need to grow in their understanding of free grace and learn to rest in God's love. A lifetime of a legalistic performance mentality won't change overnight. Some church members will come to you so entrenched in a certain way of thinking and living that it will feel like you are deprogramming individuals who have just been sprung from a cult. I want you to just listen to that again. Deprogramming individuals who appear to be sprung from a cult. Let us not be so naive as to think that common conversation about personality types and traits will not program one to think a certain way. Regular use of tantalizing terminology will ingrain within somebody a natural propensity to believe that their issues are more about who they are, my identity, right, purpose of this conference, who I am, versus either who I am in Christ or who I am in need of Christ. Others will hide behind a legalistic view of God to prevent them from seeing the deeper way they fall short. In either case, Christians who are deeply entrenched in unbiblical ways of thinking must be challenged with the dual truths that humans are far more shameful than any of us could bear to acknowledge, yet are able to be made far more holy than we would dare to hope. Brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Every human soul bears the image of God. Every human soul since the fall, though, has been cursed with an identity derived from the fallen Adam. And the only hope for anyone is to be born from above. That's what the original language in John 3.16 means. Eternal life, literally, born from above. Life from above. Made righteous by the second Adam. And derive a newly created identity from him. So so when I go back to this, I can't think of any place to start earlier than creation and being made in the image of God or being remade, as it were, in the image of His Son. So that's the first, the image of God. The first sort of layer of the foundation that we need to always go back to. Secondly, the instrument of God. The inner person is the instrument of God. Proverbs 20, verse 27. The spirit of man... That should be a, 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 a lowercase s in your translation. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, Yahweh, searching all his innermost parts. Now you can read over Proverbs twenty twenty seven and say, well, that's a rather interesting, somewhat esoteric statement. I'll take it at face value and move on. Or you can pause and meditate on that until it begins to unlock chambers of your mind that perhaps until now have been left unexplored. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. Who who owns the lamp? Who's the possessor of the lamp in that case? The Lord. He's put a lamp in who? All of us. Now what happens when you walk into a dark room with a lamp and you put it down? What does it do? It illuminates it. Is there a means by which, through careful consideration, 
one might illuminate even the dark corners of one's inner person? The answer is yes. Who uses that? Who's concerned for that? Who wants the inner person to be exposed and therefore <coughs> redeemed? The Lord himself. Now, what has he done? How is he, how is he doing that? How are we involved in, in helping with that? That was my question. Because, because if, if it says this and it's true, searching all his innermost parts, searching all his or her innermost parts, how wonderful would it be, counselor, if the person who came to deal with you had a passageway straight into the innermost parts of their heart? Isn't that where we're trying to go? I mean, isn't that the frustration sometimes? We're, we're, we're week after week, month after month, year after year, you know you're only getting so far. There are these locked doors. He says here that there's something that probes deep into the inner person, and I want to know what that is. It's an instrument. And I'm going to argue in a moment that instrument is what we often call a person's image or identity or personality or whatever you want to call it. In, an, in essence, this gives us a thread to pull all the way to the heart. It's a thread that you can pull all the way to the heart. So my recommendation in terms of the second point here is how we set this foundation is to do this. Demonstrate how personality is actually a diagnostic instrument. It's a diagnostic instrument used on yourself and by others to plumb the depths of the inner person. To plumb the depths of that inner person. So when I meet with somebody, it can't be just to fix. It's got to be to search. I mean... I'm going to confess to you, I prefer to fix. I just, I just prefer to fix. So, so if you were to say to me, well, what do you mean? I would say, well, it goes like this. If there's something that's going on in my marriage and my wife has a need and she comes to me with it and she wants to talk to me about it and she addresses what's in her heart and she begins to tell me what's going on and why she's upset and what's hurting her and why it's bothering her and what the situation is, my first response is not to listen. My first response is to do what? To fix it. Now, I might be the only husband who does this, but I, I don't, I doubt it. And, I, and, I, and it's like, before she's even done, I'm like, no problem. I know where this is going. I've seen this movie before. I know exactly how it's going to end. Tell you what, I've already got a solution for it. I'll fix it. You don't even need to finish. No, I got it. I got it covered. I'll fix it right now. I'm on my way. I'm going to go do it. And you know, she says, oh, that's why I love you so much. It's because you just, you're so, it's like our hearts are knit together. She's like, that doesn't help. She's like, I don't want you to fix it. And then, and then I have to be careful. I'm like, well, then it ought not be brought up because frankly... Fixing things is what we do. If, it's, if, you th if you don't want me to fix it, why bring it up? All we're going to do is talk about it. It's like, that's all I ever want to do is talk. Now, if she was here, that story would have gone a little differently. <laughs> do we do that, though, on a regular basis with the people who have come to us wanting to bear their soul about something? I mean, are we quick to... Hear the story. We've got the data intake form. We're already 85% of the way to our diagnosis. We haven't met the patient yet, right? Seen that a hundred times. We're already filling out the prescription. We're already looking on the shelf like, oh, I'm going to hand that book and that book and that book. Because they come in basically with a, you know, encounter, potentially encounter somebody who's already essentially diagnosed and already has a plan. Yesterday, I was almost debilitated because I have a 
pull in my right muscle here, IT band it's called, and um, that's because, according to the physiotherapist that I talked to, he said, I am remarkably tight. Meaning, like this is about as far as I can bend over, generally speaking. And he said, the problem is with people like you is when you start to do an activity, you end up pulling your muscles. And he says, have you started to do anything? I said, well, yeah, I mean, a few months ago, I decided I would take up running, you know? I mean, I, I, was, I was admiring this person who was running like an amazing amount, serious distances, and I thought, if he, I, I wanna do that too. And I get out there, and I think I did it once or twice, and then like all of the cripple, you know, pain starts. And I had two options. One is I could go to a physical therapist and he was gonna make me do painful, torturous stretches and eventually it'll fix itself. Or I would go to a surgeon. And what do you think the surgeon would recommend if I were to see him on the first visit? Surgery. Surgeons? You got these other people. Beloved, I want us to be careful that as we go into this situation, when we talk about being an instrument of God, this, this person that we're talking to, it is way more than just coming to a snap decision determining what we're going to prescribe, and then saying, great, you're done. There needs to be a searching of the innermost parts. Let me explain how this works. One of the greatest assets of having, one of the greatest assets we have as evangelists and counselors is the human conscience. The person will condemn themselves simply by holding others to their own moral standard. I think that one of the most helpful ways in which the spirit of a man or a woman is used by God to search the innermost parts of themselves is by putting before them the people that are causing them to be judgmental. The very way in which the heart is judges itself is by being put in a position where the heart itself is offended, where they are the ones being wronged, they are the ones being hurt. And to be able to, with dexterity, guide one's thoughts away from immediately solving the problem they feel and instead saying, what does that reveal about the innermost parts of you will be the foundation for allowing this notion of their identity, of their personality, all of that, because it's, it's all affected by circumstances. To allow that to exist, but not to yield to it. Let it instead serve as that lamp. And so I say conscience here just because that's sort of a big word we can use to encompass it all. Spirit is a word. Soul is a word. It's the inner person. It's the source from which emanates all the visible and traceable aspects. It's the sun from which all the beams emanate. It's the, it's the fountainhead from which the stream comes. When you, when you come across a stream, you don't assume the stream just started there. You, you can trace it back. You go back and back until you come to the source. I believe the source, in so many cases, the instrument of God, is that very characteristic that comes to define, in their minds, who they are. We can trace it back. The way I describe it when I'm trying to help people understand it is that we trace back the visible manifestations that we see, we trace them back to that inner man, inner woman, and here, the Lord is said to do it for us as well. It's His light. It's His instrument. So, rather than emanating, emanating from a person, Scripture says that our personality or our identity is a lamp that is turned inward that we might know ourselves. God uses it as a lamp to illuminate the true person. So, first of all, you've got the image of God. We have to begin there. 
Secondly, what is the instrument of God? It's that personality. It's who the person is, the innermost parts. There's, we could go on and on about that, but just the, the idea that you are not just a product of circumstances. There's an innermost being that in time can be known and therefore served. Thirdly, I call this the imitation of God. So the image of God, the instrument of God. Thirdly, the imitation of God. Once that inner man is identified, brought into alignment with Scripture, what do we have? Question is, what do I do at the source of this identity conflict that people seem to be experiencing at times? 1 Corinthians 2.11 says this, my text. 1 Corinthians 2.11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Allow yourself just to think about that for a second. Paul is comparing the capital S Holy Spirit in the inter-Trinitarian union of the Godhead and the knowledge between God himself with the person's thoughts and their spirit. So that immaterial part of you, what makes you different than an animal, is just as illuminating with respect to who you are as the Holy Spirit is to the Godhead. That's massively significant. That's a gigantic asset in, in, in our labor. That, that, that's, that's a gift. That, that's something we have to be very, very careful to consider before we simply jump to a prescription mindset. So what do I do with that? I'm going to break this down for you, and then we'll get to some application, okay? Encourage believers. I'm going to start there. Encourage believers to remember that the personality they possess, it is real, so not all the same, but it is a gift from God intended to reveal themselves to themselves. To reveal themselves to themselves. Even all of the stuff that you learn about yourself that you wish wasn't true. It's often been said that you know that a man or a woman is truly mature when they are content to be alone with their own thoughts. Why do we live in a world of endless distraction? Why do we live in a world of endless, endless distraction and input? Because most of us wouldn't know what to do if we were to sit alone and just be with ourselves. Have you ever tried it? One of these retreats, we're going to go on a personal retreat, a silent retreat, no phone, no computer, no nothing. We're just going to go, and it's going to be great. We're going to go, and we're going to pray, and we're going to commune with the Lord, and we're going to spend multiple days just by ourselves without any distraction, and everything is going to be wonderful. And so we go to the place, and, we, and we're by ourselves, and there is no phone, no computer. There, there, there's no inputs whatsoever, no distractions. It's just us by ourselves, alone with God. And four minutes later, we don't know, <laughs> we're bored. <laughs> we feel our phone buzzing in our pocket, but it's not there. <laughs> 
that there's this, there's this constant connectivity. And so my argument would be, as we were able to kind of dig down into this, this, this notion that something within us can reveal to ourselves ourselves, that the Lord will honor the prayer, as the, the psalmist said, to search me, know me, that as we embrace that reality, we're going to realize that no one really knows the thoughts of a man or a woman except the spirit of that person which is in him or her. And therefore, I want to, I want, I want to tap into that. I want, to, I want to explore that. Now, by the way, I think, I think that proverb, or I'm sorry, I think that statement by Paul is, is universal. I think it applies to believers and unbelievers alike. But both these beings created with a spirit interprets itself. And this is kind of a, a fluid thing because we're not always the same. I, I would think of it this way. If you were to take those personality tests, um, how, how many of you, if you were to take one of those personality tests, it's going to say something like this. Do you, do you enjoy being the center of attention? Yes or no? How many of you would say, like, do you enjoy being the center of attention? And it's yes or no. How many of you would say yes? Put up your hand. This is great. I love it. Yeah, see? It's always like, well, yeah, I mean, I want to be the center of attention. <laughs> now, I'm not going to ask you who doesn't want to be the center of attention because I might point you out. And yet, if you were to say, I don't want to be the center of attention, I don't, I don't like people to look at me. I don't want to be, you know, drawn attention to it all. And let's just say, for example, you happen to be a woman and you also have happened to at one point been married. And you remember at that wedding, you were the center of attention, weren't you? I mean, no, one, no one's going there to see the groom, right, men? We just know that. Like, nobody stands, like, their head's looking over. Where's the groom? Oh, look, he's wearing a, he's wearing a tux. Wow. Amazing. Wow. They're here to see one person, and that's you. And all of a sudden, you are the center of attention, but it's really not so bad. So, well, how can that be? Why am I so conflicted? The reality is, these are fluid things. You're not always the same in every situation, in every context. Like, let's just admit it. We're not. It's part of the complexity of being created in the image of God. And so, in the case of an unbeliever, there is a flaw, though, in this, in this machinery, in, in terms of how they view themselves. There's a level of comprehension, but it only serves to bring this momentary responses to an evaluation of themselves. I think the best example would be that parable Jesus gives of the person. It's a person is, is in view here. Remember, the house is swept up, right? And everything is cleaned up. And then all of a sudden, it, an even worse situation, even more of these demons come in, right? To fill in the gap after it's been cleaned out. It's that idea. Unbelievers can have a momentary sort of personal reformation, but it's not actually a transformation. Believers, instead of a new spirit that's put in them, a new spirit that, that illuminates them and also gives them the desire to imitate their father, their adopted father. In fact, at conversion, they become able to discern the condition of their own hearts with accuracy and it brings about a proper response. That's, that's why Ephesians 5, 1 to 10 calls us to be imitators of God. How can you be an imitator of God? The answer is that you're able to discern what is worthy of imitation. And our imitation of God is based, please notice this, on the imputation of the Spirit. Now that's language that the Puritans used to use, the imputation of the Spirit. When we think of the word imputation, it's usually imputed what? Righteousness. And we use it all the time. So 
When I say imputed spirit, you're like, well, that's different. Well, that's how they understood it. We talk about the indwelling spirit, the spirit that seals, the spirit that fills, the spirit that, that even speaks to our spirit. But the idea was an imputed spirit, a given spirit. And when I started to think about the imputation of the spirit, the way I think about the imputation of righteousness, it kind of opened up my eyes to the reality of what believers have at their disposal. And so when I'm exhorting a fellow believer, I'm exhorting him or her to rest upon the imputed spirit that will produce that visible imputed righteousness. And to me, that was a key that helped unlock some challenging situations because I wasn't quite sure how they ought to believe that they were accessing the imputed righteousness of Christ. We know it. We know it's there. But they say, now practically, how do I make sure that I have access to that? It's through the Spirit. So were it not for the Holy Spirit in us, there would be no hope for us to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. So it is also an ever-changing and maturing part of their being. These thoughts and intentions of our own hearts are revealed to us by God through Scripture and through the help of others. I say through the Scriptures and through the help of others because one of the most uh, wonderful truths here, it says, you know, for who knows a, a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. Notice the comparison, though. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. That means that the Spirit of God reflects and knows and communicates the thoughts of God And where are the thoughts of God communicated and contained? The Scriptures. Which means that I know for a fact that when I apply these truths from the Word to an individual, that those are God's thoughts. God's thoughts, the Spirit's thoughts, communicating with that imputed Spirit, is what I use as my prayer that there will be an effective change through this. That's my channel. That's why I can say to somebody, imitate God. And they say, imitate God. I can't even like imitate this other believer who behaves better than me. I can't even imitate, you know, the, 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 the discipler who's ministering to me. And you're asking me to imitate God? The answer is yes. You imitate God because you've got an imputed spirit. That spirit of God is in you. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. You have the power and you have the commands And it's a matter of being called upon to believe and to obey. So I've said here, overall, kind of the premise of this, is that the foundation, the purpose, and the the function of that inner person, the image of God, the instrument of God, the imitation of God. Now, this is where we come in. Let me give you some practical applications, okay? I have these broken down into three categories. Okay, category one, gospel implications. Gospel implications. Number one, we preach the new creation, which is regeneration, as a precursor to change. The reason we evangelize, the reason we preach about the new creation, about being transformed, born from above, a new creature. Why is that so important in preaching? Because that is regeneration. That is the change that has to happen before the change can happen. Okay? We preach the new creation as a precursor, okay, as a gateway to real change. It's the change before the change. 
Number two, we embrace the new creation. We embrace the new creation, and that is sanctification. We embrace that, we believe it, we allow it to change us, and we embrace the new creation as a precursor to glorification. I do believe, friends, that as we encounter people, there are some who, though they wouldn't admit it when they walk into our office, they are there because more than anything, they want to be glorified. That's all they want. Sir, I want to be glorified. Now, 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 if they were open and, and honest, can you imagine how that conversation would go? Stand down and they'd say, I, I hear you're a biblical counselor. And you say, yeah, yes, I am. I hear you're ACBC certified. And you say, well, as a matter of fact, I am. I hear you know Jim Neuheiser personally. Well, <laughs> Okay. I want to be glorified. And I say, what, what do you mean you want to be glorified? I want to be free from sin. I want to be free from sin. I don't want to think sinful thoughts. I don't want to do sinful deeds. I want to be like Jesus. I just want to be free from sin. I want to be the perfect husband. I want to be the perfect wife. I just want to be, I want to be glorified. What do you say? Are you a believer? Yes, I am. You want to be glorified? Yes, I am. The next step is death. <laughs> but, you know, that's not, there's no way to build a practice. That's what they want, though, right? That's what they want. That's what we want sometimes. In, in, in our, back to that quote, in, 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 our, in our misconstrued idea of legalistic self-righteousness, the prayer is that I want to be glorified. So how do, how do I... How do I get myself from, from that into what's going to actually help in terms of soul care for somebody in my church? The answer is that I embrace this new creation and all the ongoing, difficult, messy sanctification that goes on until the day I finally cross the finish line and I'm received into glory and at that moment glorified. Can I point your eyes to that? Yeah. Can I tell you exactly what steps to take to get there? No, <laughs> but I'll run with you. So once we've established that the new creature through regeneration has some hope for change, then that changing new creation through sanctification has hope for glory. That's the gospel implications. Now, let's talk about counseling implications. And I'm going to, I don't know if we often talk about this in, in these settings, but I'm going to actually talk about counseling unbelievers and believers. Because in my experience, I used to believe that people who came to me from my church who needed counseling were all believers. But I've begun to realize that, that that's not always the case. And so, first of all, to an unbeliever, how do we, how do we apply this? This is a counseling implications. Um, for unbelievers, number one, we accept the claim, we accept the claim that they cannot help doing what they do. It took me a long time to get it. You're all nodding like, well, yeah, of course. Well, it took me a while to get there. I've had to learn to say, I, you're right. I can't stop. And I say, yeah, I know. You can't. You can't. You've, you've actually identified by God's grace and the conscience implanted within you the fact that you're not able to do what you want to do. I, I, I accept the claim. Number two, I draw their attention to the bad news of their present state. I draw their attention to it. Lovingly, carefully, but precisely draw their attention to the main problem. The main problem 
and there's multiple metaphors used in the Bible to describe it, is that you are the spouse of an abusive husband. You are the child of a wicked father. You are the offspring of <laughs> the devil. Now, now you, don't, you say that carefully. You say that graciously. You don't lead with that. But at some point, you tell the honest truth. I implore you, become a child of God. Receive the free gift of salvation through Christ. Be adopted into his family. But there's a bad news of your present state, of your present family. That's why it leads to number three. We call them to repentance and faith. Now, I don't require that before a second meeting. I don't say, well, now we'll meet again once you get saved. Um, no, we'll, we'll, we'll keep talking. But my, my goal is now evangelistic. I'm thinking more about the new creature than I am about the sanctification. But I'm to call to repentance and faith. So number one, we accept the claim. Number two, we draw their attention to that bad news. Number three, we call them to repentance. Number four, I'm going to warn them of house cleaning. <laughs> I warn them of house cleaning, that, that parable of just cleaning things up. Um, again, it'd be interesting to take a poll. How many times have you planned for a number of sessions where you're meeting with somebody and they end the counseling early because they're already fixed in their own mind. I think that's one of the hardest parts for, for me because I, I, can't, I can't guarantee that I'll get every opportunity that I was hoping for because the call comes in that, hey, I'm, we're good now. Marriage, we're good, we're good now. We gotta fit, we're good. And, and, and I just wanna say, you're not, you're not good. You're not good. You swept things up a little bit, but what's going to happen is it's going to get even worse later because you haven't dealt with the root issue. So I warn against house cleaning. Don't do house cleaning. And then number five, remove the moral barriers of entry. We remove the moral barriers of entry. Explain what I mean by that. There is a preconceived notion among people who know that they are evil in their heart but want to be good on the outside, and the answer to their problem is to achieve the same external moral conformity that they see in the people around them. And their idea is there is a moral bar that needs to be cleared, and they'll be fine. And, and, and sometimes, whether we realize it or not, we as those who are seeking to help them, and even sometimes the people who they're hurting, their spouse, will set that bar. They'll determine what it is. Here's the proof. Here's the line. Here's the expectation. Here's the barrier of entry. When you cross this, we'll know there's real progress being made. And what I try to do is remove the, the moral barrier of entry and say, there's, there's never, ever going to be an ability for you to cross that. In fact, even if that bar was lying on the floor, you couldn't get over it. Because, because there, the, that's not the issue. You're going to be given a righteousness that's, that's alien to you. And so I need to remove that moral barrier of entry. And I will say this, if I can be careful with the person, especially if I'm a, I've determined that they're an unbeliever or they've acknowledged they're not a believer, I, 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 I disarm them with, their, with coming at me saying, well, I can't do anything about it. I just disarm them by agreeing, draw their attention to why, call them to repentance and faith, warn them about their own sort of moral housekeeping, and then say, by the way, even if that was an option, you couldn't reach it anyhow. And it leaves them kind of in a state of quandary. Like they say, like, I thought you were going to be helpful. <laughs> I want to be. 
So I want to point you to Christ who's going to, who's going to cover all these things. Now, what about for the believer? It's clear the person's a believer. They know the gospel. What do I do? Same sort of five ideas, similar wording, but tweaked for them. Number one, I want to deny the claim that flesh overrules spirit. In this case, I'm denying their claim. When they say, I can't stop, now I'm denying the claim. Now I'm going back and I'm saying, no, scriptures are clear. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the what? Flesh. So it's like, nah, sorry, you can't say that anymore. You know, your unsaved spouse over there, yep, they can say it, but you can't. It's like, it's not fair. Yep, but you're saved. So, you know, different set of rules. I deny that. I'm not going to let you do that. Number two, I'm going to draw their attention instead to the good news of their present state. (laughs) The good news of their adoption. The good news that they are joint heirs with Christ. The good news that glorification awaits them. The good news that sanctification is possible. The good news that they're not going to lose their salvation. The good news that God is never going to judge them based on their moral strength. It's always going to be in the righteousness of Christ anyway. The good news that is the bad news that they're actually worse than they think they are even on their best day. And that they're still loved. That God doesn't, in the term I use, He doesn't day trade your reputation. He doesn't, he doesn't decide to love you based on how you did that day. It's not an up or a down. It's not a green or a red. And so when people come to me and they have that mentality that God is just kind of day trading me, he's saying, you know, I really love you if you did well, and I don't love you if you did poorly. We can remove that. Now, interestingly enough, I'm still going to call them to repentance, but it's more of this. It's not repentance as much as it is this confession, this acknowledgement that I see sin the same way God sees it. I see the sin, I'm confessing it, and I am endeavoring to do the good works that he's called me to, not to save myself, but to evidence his work in my life. And then number five, I want to remove the the moral barriers of assurance. Remove the moral barriers of of assurance. I know that sounds kind of similar, so let me just explain that again. With the unbeliever, I'm removing the moral barrier of entry. With the believer, I'm trying to remove the moral barriers of assurance. How many times has assurance been linked to performance that you've dealt with, with with others? How many times has your own assurance been linked to performance? We treat ourselves like, like we're a company that has to give a quarterly report. Go before the Lord and we say, it was a, it was a bad quarter. We had a bad quarter. I mean, last quarter was really good. You know, that one, I, mean, I, high, I was like moral profit, like you wouldn't believe. High stock price. This, this quarter is not so good. We kind of missed it. You think, oh, the guy's disappointed in me now. What do I do? I remove that moral barrier of assurance. Because once the ground is cleared, once we get past all of this stuff that clutters and distracts and is so tantalizingly scientific, I believe we'll get back to the real root of who we are. Takeaway. This is the third part. So I've given you the gospel implications, the counseling implications, and then the takeaway. And then we'll take some questions if that would be helpful. Takeaway is this. I've got five of the, four of these maybe. Um, and if anybody wants this handout I've been reading from, you can just let me know and I'll, I'll give it to you. Um, okay, number one. Th- these are 
These are lessons I, these are, what, these are the things I tell myself, so you can, you can take these or leave them. Um, so I'll call it a takeaway or I'll leave it here. But these are four things I do uh, and remind myself of whenever I'm in a situation that, that warrants this kind of thinking. Number one, incorporate a theology of identity as part of that intake process. So I want to incorporate a theology of identity as part of my, my intake process. Now this I actually got from, believe it or not, Thomas Watson in his Body of Divinity. He, he goes into this wonderful section on who we all are as a consequence of being in Adam. And he says this, and I love how the, I love how the Puritans write, they call them uses, like they give you a theological truth, and it's like use one here, use two here, use 437, you know, for some of these guys. Um, here it is, use. From Adam's sudden fall, learn how sad it is for a man to be left to himself. Adam being left to himself fell. Oh, then what will become of us? How soon fall if God should leave us to ourselves? Now, the whole section is really good. But you'll have to read it for yourself. Here's, 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 here's where I get this from. It's my argument. I want to incorporate a theology of identity into every time I encounter somebody because I want them all to know that were it not for the sustaining hand of God as a believer, you would fall. You would fall. Yet there is that promise of sustaining you. And, and, and so if you're instead going to say, well, I'm not going to fall based on my personality, based on my history, based on my, my discipline, based on whatever else, I'm going to say, brother, sister, those are good things maybe, but they're not the ultimate things. The only thing that will sustain you and keep you up is the grace of God who saved you. So I incorporate that. Number two, I disincentivize. Okay, I know. Sorry. I disincentivize the personality trait excuse. I just, I just, I'm not going to allow that to be an incentive. I just... If somebody wants to say, well, this is what I am, I say that's, that's fine, but it doesn't excuse you from what God's called you to be. I was in a contentious meeting recently, and a person declared to everybody their personality type before making their comment. Uh, and, and, and it wasn't necessarily appropriate for me to respond to that, but my thought was, your personality type does not excuse the behavior that you're engaged in right now. <laughs> you're not going to get out because of that. Right? Guilty of a sin. Well, not really, because you have to understand. See, I'm, you know, I'm an extrovert, and that's just kind of what we do. It wasn't flirting. It was just me being an extrovert. Like, no, that was just pretty much garden variety sin. Stop it. Like, disincentivize that. Don't, don't, don't lean on that. It's tempting to lean on it. It's tempting to believe, and I'm here with you, it's tempting to believe that it might be a shortcut to that inner person we talked about earlier. It's tempting to, that might be a shortcut. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to follow that thread instead. Because we both agree that that's what he is. And I'm just going to try to, I'm going to run that, I'm going to run that play instead. It's, it's tempting. I want to disincentivize that. Number three, I want to focus on the reality of spiritual heredity. I want to focus on the reality of spiritual heredity. Now, this does not grant an excuse for sin, but it does address the issues that we are going to encounter when we're ministering to somebody. 
So by that, all, heredity, like where do you come from? I have to acknowledge if you're, if you're not a child of God, then you're a child of who? I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with a child of Satan. It's okay to acknowledge that. It's okay to think that as we're, as we're ministering to them. Because if you don't, you become what I think of as a practical Pelagian. You're a practical Pelagian. You, you actually begin, if was, you remember Pelagius, you, you begin from the, the premise that there's something good enough in this person to appeal to to change them. Some, there's something in it, there's a, there's a goodness. In fact, Watson again. Watson again. See, if I burn all the clock, there won't be any time for questions, and I can get out of here, and I won't have to explain anything, and everything will be fine. He says, this is his, he's talking about imputation again. He says this, the Pelagians of old held that Adam's transgression is hurtful to posterity, note this please, by imitation only, not by imputation. Brilliant. We aren't wicked because of imitation of our father the devil. We're wicked because of imputation. The same imputed righteousness that causes us to have the righteousness of Christ and not just try to imitate Christ in our own strength is the same imputed wickedness that came from our father the devil and therefore makes, us impossible, makes it impossible for us to do any good. And, and, and the moment you step back and just acknowledge that, the burden of trying to decipher why a person is, why they, you know, who they are and what they are and why they are goes away. It just evaporates. So that's why I disincentivize it. Number four, and we're done. Number four, emphasize, emphasize the polarity, okay? The polarity of self-help versus spiritual help. We live in a self-help age, don't we? Read a book recently which I thought was really helpful in the way that the author framed it up. It's a fiction book, but it was, it was written, and this author said that this is a, a self-help book, and then the author said, but you know, there's really no such thing as a self-help book because really it's somebody telling you what to do. It's help from someone else. There, there is no such thing as a self-help book, right? If, you know, if there was really self-help, you'd just help yourself, wouldn't you? It's not a self-help. But again, I'm, I'm just in my weakness sometimes, I, tend, I, I will go that way with people. Like, oh, well, I'm tempted to go that way. I have to emphasize, no, 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 it's not self-help. It's spiritual help. It's tapping into that which is in you because you're a new creation. There's no such thing as self-help. The very fact that people are seeking help proves that they can't do it themselves. So just by way of review... I'll give you those four just quickly one more time. I incorporate a theology of identity as part of that intake process. I want to disincentivize this personality trait excuse, which can come up sometimes. I want to focus on the reality that you really are what you are based on who your father is. And then number four, I want to emphasize that polarity of self-help versus spiritual help. Thank you for your attention tonight. We do have a minute or so for questions. If any are out there, I'd be happy to answer them if I can. And if not, I'll let you go. Yes, question in the back. May I have your name, sir? Uh, Mike. Mike, all right. Uh, yes, 
the question is where they want me to record the question to. So question is, um, where will you find within the Puritan writings the concept of the imputation of the spirit? Uh, body of divinity, Thomas Watson. Every version is a little bit different, so I won't give you a page number, but if you like these Puritan paperbacks that Banner of Truth does, um, that happens to be in the section on original sin. So no matter what you have in terms of an addition, it's going to be under the large heading of the fall. And then throughout all of that, it begins with the covenant of works, and it goes all the way through it, and that imputation of sin is, is, is in there. Okay. Uh, Body of Divinity. Body of Divinity by Thomas Watson. If you haven't read Thomas Watson, I strongly recommend him. This He is, of all the... Uh, I haven't read every Puritan, but of all the Puritan writers that I've read, he has the, mo he has the most, um, has the most beautiful illustrations just incorporated into his work. I mean, you picture the Puritans as being a little stodgy, maybe a little bit dry, a little bit hard to get through. I picture Watson, like he's walking around a garden, he's like writing theology, and he's like using butterflies for examples, and blah, 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 you know what I mean? Like it's, it's so um, warm. It's so full of life and it's warm. It's a beautiful um, book, so highly recommend. So the question is, if we had a list of biblical goals in different categories of life, is it a good idea to provide that, given the fact that some who may have a tendency towards legalism may view it as a checklist for righteousness? I guess my answer would be, as we plumb the depths of each person's individual situation and care enough about them to really know who they are and what their tendencies would be, then I think we'd be able to answer that question on a case-by-case -case basis. I do know that I have every right to go to where the scriptures tell me what they should be pursuing. So I can start there by what I'm pursuing in righteousness, pursuing in my imitation of God. In terms of the direct application of it, that comes from getting to know the person at a level where you can take broad concepts and make them specific encouragements. And that takes time and attention and care and a caveat that we're going to repeat every time we get together, I'm going to repeat it to you, that this doesn't you know, earn you favor with God. It manifests that that journey towards glorification that we're all looking for. Yeah, it, I, yeah and I keep going back to this illustration, and, and maybe it's a little bit too simplistic, but um, if you are given a prescription of, of some kind, um, no matter what it is these days, uh, they make you wait in line so that some pharmacist can like read the instructions to you on the bottle. You know, don't take, you know, don't take seven of these, just take one of them. And you're like, don't drink a bottle of wine with it. Okay, thank you. I got it. Don't drive heavy machinery. Don't worry. Why? Why? Because we're all wired to, to take what's given and go further with it and self-medicate, self-sanctify. So it sounds strange. And again, I, I apologize if I'm maybe saying something that, that some other people might disagree with. But um, very gracious of them, by the way, to invite me to speak at this because I'm sort of not normally with this group. Maybe it's because it's at our church here, and they're like, we've got to give them a time slot. Um, <laughs> very kind of them. I'm happy to do it. Um, 
but, but you know, I, I think it's very important because as we, with every good intention, seek to bring biblical counsel, we can at times leave somebody with a whole bottle in their hand and, 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 and they come back having self-medicated and thinking that they're, they're fine. I mean, that's why we don't see them. There's this pain in my hip, right? If I had been given some medical prescription, you know, some pill, you know, I probably could have taken half the bottle and the pain would be gone. Never have to see the person again, right? <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> if I was on that, it might be a better talk tonight, too. I don't know. All right. Any other questions before we go? You guys have been very patient. Thank you. Okay. Going once, going twice. Okay. Buzzer beater. All right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's ruined it for you. You've got to stay now. All right. What's your name? My name's Trace. Trace? Okay. Wow. Um, that's a good, good question. Trace is wondering, uh, no, what, uh, but that's a good question. Now, what do you do when you see somebody come back with the same um, issue? And it could be a sin pattern, it might not be. It could just be a same issue. You know, when, when do you sort of lean a little harder on them to do what they need to do in order, in order to, Lord willing, overcome that? Uh, I don't, every answer might, you give, might be a little bit different depending on who you, who you speak to. I don't claim to be the most experienced person in this. My personal approach is to basically set my eye on glorification and not have any expectation to get off this road until we get there. My personal expectation is that I will see you perhaps back here every, I will see you back here until you go to be with the Lord. And I've just set my, I've already decided that. I'm not going to try to fix you. I'm not going to get heavy handed with you. I'm not going to try to fix you. I'm going to keep, you're going to keep coming back and I'm going to keep giving the same truth. And, and it's almost like if I can decide ahead of time that this issue may be um, something that will never be overcome, then, then I'm, I have to be prepared to embrace that to some degree. But that's that care thing you talked about. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's care, but it's, it's also... It, 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 but it goes back to that theology of, of, of who we are. We, are. we are redeemed, fallen, cursed people, right? So, so, so it's care... But it's also empathy, because I'm cursed as well. I mean, how wonderful would it be? How are you doing? Well, I'm cursed. It's true. A cursed flesh. So, so I'm going to be walking, and you're all cursed as well, so we can just all agree on this. But we're going to walk together as, you know, that un, until the end. And so I've just, it, as much as I would love to see that person cured, if you will, or kind of overcome that, um, especially when it's not an overt sin, like a pattern of willful sin in their life. This is a certain amount of uh, long-term you know, care that you just have to be prepared to extend to them. The only um, caveat that I would, would give to that is to say, go back and say to the person, when I talk about searching your own heart, does your heart delight in this sin? Because there can actually be, believe it or not, a self-destructive delight in the very sin that brings them to this constant place of self-evaluation. I just have to ask them that sometimes. And it seems shocking to them, like, well, no, I'm here because I'm miserable. Are you really miserable? And then now I'm just asking them to ask themselves that. And again, who knows the, heart, the spirit of the person better than the person, right? I'm saying, ask, go back, ask the Lord to reveal it. Ask the Lord to reveal it. Because there are people who will um, hold on to the thing that is that is hurting them, and they keep saying to you, "Help me, help me, help me," and and 
At some point, you just maybe want to ask that, but I wouldn't start there. That's <laughs> after a long time. And, and, and again, if I could say anything about that, it would just be, let's recalibrate the um, time that we allocate to the person. Because if we start to discern that a certain project will take a certain amount of time, we will begin to get frustrated with people. When you, when you go into the mechanic, you get an oil change. The book says you bill for half an hour, right? Your break's done, it's a one and a half hour. Sometimes in counseling, we want to go to the book and we go, pornography, um, read finally free, uh, three months. Three months, okay, so three months, and this person, and they're still struggling with it, and you're like, no, the book says you're supposed to be done by now. Why are you so slow? But we can feel that way. I, I actually go into this, um, and I'll use that as an example, saying, brother, we might have a conversation 10 years from now when you plunge back into some binging on, on a sin that you thought you'd overcome. And I'm going to love you just as much when that happens. I'm not going to say, you, you blew it. How could you? We've been through this. You graduated from that. <laughs> so, okay. Um, we, we, yeah, can we, okay, we'll wrap up now, and then I'm, I'm, I've got nowhere to go. So I'm, I'm going to hang out here. We'll talk more if anyone has a question, but I want to let the rest of you go. Thank you for your, uh, for your time, okay? All right, thank you. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.